Well, we've all seen it or heard of it, if not seen it with our own eyes. Uh, people in places and at times um, who are attention thieves, right? They're, they're thieves of attention. Those who can't just seem to put anyone else uh, first and act in ways that are self-focused, which rob uh, special days, for instance, of their intended focus or the mood of that day. And there are indeed certain events and times in life where particular actions and attitudes are required. Uh, they're expected and they're required for respect. And um, for instance, whether you like it or not, a wedding isn't a place, right, to dress in all black or to be dour or somber in attitude or mope around at a wedding. Even if you're having a bad day, you should get over yourself um, and your issues that you might have for the sake of what? For the the bride and the groom and their celebration on that day. Um, even if you're a child who's forced to wear an itchy suit or an uncomfortable dress uh, for the first time, uh, right? Unless we're completely self-obsessed or immature, we know that it's a time for us that requires uh, action that is different, to act differently in these kind of cases. Um, a wedding is a day focused on and dedicated to others, right? Where people are celebrating and you're supposed to celebrate regardless of how you feel, right, in honor of uh, that day and that couple. Um, and this is kind of what's going on in this text, right? There's a certain time has emerged historically, redemptively historically, and a certain event has come that requires a particular response. Um, we've seen some of this um, in the past number of weeks as we work through this text, um, uh, work through this gospel of Mark. And because of this, people are angered. <clears throat> the disciples weren't acting how they were expected, how they were supposed to be acting. And people are angered by the way the disciples are acting, or not acting, rather. But it ends up being that they're angered. Why? Because they don't understand, or they refuse to believe what is happening right before their eyes. <clears throat> right there, the point is missed. And so as we approach our text this morning, uh, we're coming to the third of these kind of controversial encounters between Christ and the leaders, uh, the leadership of Israel. And each of these encounters, right, these conflicts, these controversies, tells us something of Christ's mission and about that mission. Um, and as Christ and his mission is revealed, the reaction is not good and not positive to it by many, as we have read. Uh, as we look at our passage this morning, we need to remember that at this point, Christ is being viewed by much of the community as merely just another rabbi among many. Right? Notice in the text, these are groups of people that have disciples. Right? We, these two, for instance, instance that we read of, um, John's disciples and then the Pharisees. Right? And Jesus is just another rabbi with a group of followers of his own. And during this time period, um, historically, there are many uh, renewal groups right? focusing on specific things, uh, groups that uh, people uh, kind of hoping to usher in the good days of Israel, if they could just act rightly and act that would appease God for their sins. And it would be completely common to have many teachers going around gathering followers to themselves. And to many people, from their perspective, Jesus violates the protocol and the rules that he needed to be following um, for this thing to happen. And one of those protocols was the fasting of his followers, right? Jesus and his disciples were not doing the right things at the right times as they saw it, right? Historically and in practice, as groups seeking followers needed to be doing. And those who approach him in our passage are saying, 
in essence, you don't want to lose your ability to uh, reach other people, do you? you? You don't want to offend everybody if you don't have to, right? You must not understand the way that things are done around here. You're missing the way it goes. And they're telling him that if he really is a rabbi and if he's going to bring disciples to himself, one of the things necessary to show that you're serious is that you've got to go without, right? There's self-denial that has to be done. At least your disciples need to. They need to be fasting. They need to show some commitment in that self-denial for the sake of Israel and for her God, that God might, what, do something for the nation. And so this is the issue that comes before our Lord in this text this morning. There is this complaint, right, that not everyone is engaging in the self-denial as they should be, as they see it. And so verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And the, the complaint is that they're not denying themselves like we are, right, those who come. So get it together and, and act as you should. That's the way it should be. And of course, according to God's law, the Torah, uh, there's really only one required fast per year as we, as we read it, right? And that was to take place on the Day of Atonement, right, Yom Kippur. Um, and that was this 24-hour mandated fast in Israel. But if you read the whole law, there's no other fast that's required um, in order to be acceptable before God. <clears throat> One mandated fast and no more. But as history moved on, and as Israel has gone through exile and returned from exile and so forth, uh, things had changed, right? And one day of fasting was no longer the norm in Israel. And we see that as we come across these two groups, um, it was much more common fasting was. And we find that if you were serious about Israel's well-being, that you would deny yourself certain worldly pleasures, hoping that it would be pleasing to God and make uh, penance for sins that you've committed as a nation. Um, and so again, who are these two groups that we see represented in this text? Again, it's the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees. <clears throat> and so notice as we hear this, it's not, just, uh, it's not just the bad guys that we're encountering, right? Um, it's not just the Pharisees who confront Jesus and who are uh, asking about these things. He's been confronted by people who are also concerned about John the Baptist's disciples, um, they do these things as well. So it's not really like a good versus evil, but it's more like this is the way it is and you're not doing it this way. So what's going on? And why is that? Why are things different for Christ and his disciples? <clears throat> and we see John's disciples are continuing with what John had taught them. Right? It's in conformity with what he had taught them. They're continuing in this mode or this mood of John the Baptist, which was what? It was a mode of preparation, of repentance, right? And so John was uh, the one who was preparing Israel for the coming of the Savior. And because of that, John's message and his manner was one of repentance and of waiting and of hoping that God would act. And fasting fit perfectly with that mode, with that mood. And so you remember what they said about John, right? John was uh, called... We read in the text that he came neither eating or drinking, drinking, and they said he has a demon, right? So when they categorized and characterized John's ministry, they said John was one that repressed the flesh. He was a self-sacrificial. He was one that was 
self-denying. And this was because he knew that Israel was in trouble. And he was waiting for the coming one who would deliver them from that trouble. And then we have the Pharisees. And in some ways they fasted very similar to uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, but even in a more expanded way. They fasted in reaction to the unholy corruption that they witnessed in Israel. And their desire for holiness in the land was uh, in, in hopes that the Messiah would come and that he would respond to Israel changing their ways. And so the Pharisees then began to fast twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. And they were seen as very upstanding, very godly men in the community because of their willingness to separate themselves and to seek the good of Israel through their self-denial. And they went far beyond the law, far beyond what the law required, which again said only one day was mandated. And they began to require themselves many fast days throughout the year. And so in Israel, there developed these multiple aspects for fasting. Right? One reason that you fast was because you need forgiveness of sins. And this aspect of fasting uh, was for repentance as you looked for expiation, right? for God to forgive your sins and to remove that which uh, separated you from God. But there was also fasting uh, for the purpose of social and political disasters. Right? They would hope in their mourning uh, that the mourning would appease God's anger. And so they would set certain days aside and they would remember how, for instance, they were crushed by the Babylonians. And they would fast concerning that day and they would mourn over their sin. But also along with these two aspects was a third aspect, and that was that it was a time of intercession. Right? Prayer, uh, fasting as a time of intercession. It was a time of prayer where you would ask, as you mourned about these past disasters and the state of things, Lord, come and deliver us, save us, set us free. And we see this as we read the prophets, right? The prophets are full of this. Many of the prophets would separate themselves in fasting, pleading on behalf of the people, saying to the Lord, have mercy on them, deliver them, Lord. And so these kinds of things continued on in the time of Christ. And both John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are participating in this kind of fasting. A time of waiting for God's deliverance. A time of mourning over sinfulness. And a time where you were hoping that God would bring real forgiveness and relief to the land. But Jesus Christ preached what? That the kingdom of God had come. We're not looking for something that is to come. It has come, he said. The kingdom is here because I, the king, am here. The time was fulfilled. He's preached that the day, a new day in Israel had begun and, begun and God's deliverance was indeed here, and that he, the Son of Man, actually had in himself the authority and the right, right now on earth, to forgive their sins. And so with that declaration, Christ is saying, very definitively, a new time has arrived. That a new time required a whole new set of actions and responses, a completely different kind of action and response. He felt it was inappropriate to continue with the ways of preparation that John the Baptist uh, taught. Because he had showed up, right? He's there. And so you don't pray, for instance, for deliverance from your captors when you're back at home on your own home soil. It wouldn't make any sense to do so, right? And so this is what Christ is saying. God has sent his deliverance and his deliverer. Why are you sitting here fasting and mourning, hoping that it comes? It is already here. Your timing is wrong. And it's making you act and respond wrongly. 
because you're confused about where you are in history. Because of John's disciples and the Pharisees, both of these groups fast, what? They are realized, they had been realized in Christ, but they're confused and they're slow to hear and see it. So they continue in this mode of self-denial, preparationalism, uh, which leads to a certain kind of self-righteousness that ends up excluding Christ himself, and they miss the point all along. And Christ is telling them, your way and manner is all wrong because of the time. So that's the important aspect that we see um, a different response is in order because of the time that they are in. Self-denial is not in line with this particular period of time. Instead, we see the joy of the new world is like the experience of the, uh, the best man at a wedding, right? full of wine and song and laughter and festivity. And Christ says this particular time calls for a different kind of response. And then he paints a picture of what, response, what that response should look like. And he gives a picture of groomsmen in the presence of the bridegroom. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. This is a bold statement by the Lord indeed to those who hear. Um, and he says, if you're one of the groomsmen and you're with the bridegroom, this isn't a time for mourning. This is not a time for you to sit there denying yourself and saying, no, no, no wine for me, no, no meat for me. I'm just denying myself for the Lord. That's the wrong attitude because it's the wrong time. He says, no, it's time for festivity. It's time for partying. And in Israel, that's indeed what it was, a wedding. A wedding was a seven-day situation. And for seven days before the bride and groom are left alone, they would feast and they would have a party and they would call together the whole town and they would launch this feast and all of the wine and the food is taken care of by the bride and groom and uh, it's required, was required of those who came. All of the guests would come and for seven days and they would say, you come and you celebrate with us. Don't do any work, don't do any labor. You come and you have a good time with us in celebration of our day to come. And there was lots of wine and lots of food and there's lots of singing and dancing. And there are many in our day who've actually removed all of these things uh, in this celebration from our weddings. But Jesus is saying that's, what expe that's what's expected at a wedding. And if you're a groomsman at the wedding, there's no place for you to have a mopey face and to be sitting dour and somber in the corner. It's a party. Cheer up. Act accordingly. And that's the point. That's the picture he's painting concerning his disciples. And he's saying, look, I'm the bridegroom. They're the groomsmen, and they're going to eat up, as it were, while I'm here because it's a wedding, it's a feast, it's a festivity. And just because you're not getting it doesn't mean it's not here. You are, in fact, missing the whole point. Call a feast, he says. I'm here. There's no need to hold back anymore. The day of salvation has come. It has arrived. The time of unshackling, the time of uh, a loosening of your bondage has arrived. Because I am here. So cheer up, celebrate, rejoice, raise a glass, go and dance, have a good time. And in their failure to do that, they weren't simply failing to enjoy themselves in that time. They were doing that, but they're actually also sinning by rejecting what's going on here. 
They're actually acting against the hour. And in acting against the hour, they're revealing their unbelief in what's before them. And it's interesting when we look at this. Notice Jesus didn't just pick this example out of thin air of the wedding, right? Uh, he didn't just say, well, well, what's the best party that we have? Or, oh, what's the wedding? Let's, let's, I'm going to use that as an example. No, Christ picks up this commonly used motif, this Old Testament illustration, again, that's common throughout. <clears throat> because we're believers in Christ on this side of the cross, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we reflexively, in our minds, go to the picture of Christ and the church as the groom and his bride. But the idea of the Messiah being the bridegroom is just unheard of in the Old Testament. It's not what we read there. When Messiah comes, he's not going to marry himself to anyone, not, not to Israel in particular. There's one bridegroom in the Old Testament, and who is that bridegroom? It's Yahweh himself. It's Yahweh. And one of the hardest words against Israel is that God says to them over and over and over again in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel and in Hosea, I took you when you were young, and I married myself to you in covenant on Sinai. And I was your husband, and I provided for you. And I defeated your enemies. I fed you. I gave you a home, and I gave you safety. And instead of being faithful to me, every other man in town got credit for all the things that I gave you. And your feet would never stay at home. You knew everyone else in town. And he starts talking about the unfaithfulness of the nation in those terms. So much so that in the book of Hosea, you'll recall, he says to them, okay, fine, I'm going to divorce you. No longer will I have mercy upon you. No longer will you be my people because of your unfaithfulness. And he ultimately serves Israel with divorce papers because of their serial and perpetual ongoing unfaithfulness. They were adulterous. And yet part of the promise of the new, new covenant is what? That a day is coming when I, will, when I will marry myself to you again. And not only will I marry myself to you, I will be exclusive to you. And I will view you as spotless and pure and beautiful in my sight. Something precious to me. And we find these rich and deep uh, uh, themes in Mark's gospel from Isaiah in his language of beauty and promise in places like Isaiah 54 where he says fear not for you will not be ashamed be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer the God of the whole earth he is called or even as we read in Isaiah 62 this morning, the beautiful promise of restoration. Again, he says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, as her salvation, as a burning torch. And remember who he is describing, this unfaithful, perpetual adulterer. He says, The nations shall see your righteousness in all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will give, and it shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, 
and your land married. For the Lord of hosts, the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's the promise of the picture of the new covenant, what the Lord will do to restore his people. And notice the picture here. The way God divorced her was not merely some verbal thing. It wasn't even just done in some heavenly spiritual realm, but rather the temple was destroyed. His presence left the nation, and they were taken and carted off to another nation and sent into exile, which was a picture of death. And so the promises of the prophets are what? That someday that exile will end and you'll be remarried to God. He will come back. God will come and he will woo you back and he will take away your shame, your very real shame. And no longer will the nations trample you down or humiliate you. And I will bring you back and I will rejoice over you as if you were a spotless and pure bride as if none of this had ever happened, as if your shame never existed in the first place. And so they're saying to Jesus in response, they're not getting it, but they say, Jesus, you don't get it. Your disciples aren't fasting. They and you don't understand. You're not comprehending this. And Christ answers and he says, I am the bridegroom who's come to marry Israel and deliver you from all exile. So it's time to celebrate. And then notice a few verses later as we continue in the, the text, they're going to start to plot to kill Jesus for this because his declaration is bold. It's shocking to them. It's nothing short of this. As he claims these things for himself, it's nothing short than the declaration that I am Yahweh in your midst. It is I. I've come to bring the restoration of Israel from exile and to marry myself to you and forever to take away your approach and your sin and to remove all those things that brought you shame. And what do they do? All they want to do is sit in the corner, mourning, refusing to come to the party, refusing to believe as if it's a badge of spiritual honor to do so. And Christ says, no, that will not do. It will not do. There's nothing spiritual about it. You're failing to recognize that day. Failing to recognize the day and then failing to recognize that you are refusing to believe in me and in my mission. And in that way, they're ultimately rejecting God himself. And then notice. <clears throat> notice that in order for them to believe what he's just said, we've got to think about those words uh, uh, somehow matching the person who's speaking them, right? Who is this speaking this way, right? They're shocked to think. They have no esteem for Christ. He's not to be talking like this. He has no authority in their eyes, and they have no faith in him. You have no right, they think, to be talking, to, to take those words upon your lips, I am the bridegroom. That's what they're so upset about. That's why they're so upset. Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh himself, in your midst, go ahead and have a party. The time of mourning is over. The time of fasting is gone. <clears throat> and so Christ gives them another parable to explain. And he says, if you're going to believe this, something needs to happen. 
You can't live in the old way anymore. The old rules and the old way have changed because time has changed. Time is filled up and I am here. And the whole way of doing business has got to change. If it doesn't, they will explode. And they do. And they're freaking out. And so he gives these two illustrations in the next verses. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the, old from the, new, uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the wineskins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so he says, you, you put something old, you put it in something old, and it's going to expand, right? What's going to happen? It's going to blow, you lose everything if you do that. The wine and the thing that you put it in. And Christ is saying, you will, if that happens, you'll have nothing left. Nothing will be there, and you will not get me along with it. But you also won't be able to hold on to the old thing in the shape that it was before. It has been done away with. Something new has happened in history. And if you don't set aside your old way of being Israel and trying to come to God on those terms and come to him through me, you yourself will be broken and you will be lost. It takes new wineskins for new wine, he tells them. It takes people willing to humble themselves and see that Christ's way and his proclamation is true. And it takes faith and belief. And Christ does go on to say, uh, however, that there is a time when they must celebrate because he's with them. And he says, you know, the kingdom is here because I, the king, am here. The new creation is here because I am with you. God's salvation is here because I am in your midst and I bring salvation. But a day is coming, he tells them, when my disciples will fast, when the bridegroom is taken away. And he's taken away, he's taken away. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Christ is making a reference. It's not clear at the time to them. Of course, as we read through Mark and we read through the whole of Mark, it's very clear that it's a reference to the cross and being taken away. But Jesus says that fasting is out because the one that John pointed to is here. The age of forgiveness is here. The time of God reuniting with his people is here. So party, as it were. It's a feast. It's a festival. But it seems odd that he says this, and then, and then he says this other thing, the day has begun, the day of salvation, but a time of mourning is coming, a day of mourning. And so, you know, try to imagine what the Pharisees are thinking when they hear this. What is he talking about? He's saying all of God's salvation has come, but a day of mourning is coming, then you will fast. But you see, the only way to secure that celebration is if the Son of Man is taken away. He's taken away. If he's taken to a cross and crucified in order that the forgiveness of sins might be truly bestowed upon those who, who are unworthy of God's gifts to begin with, Christ knows what's at stake. He knows what is at stake here. And he wants to bring the salvation of God. He wants to, uh, to marry to God a spotless bride. But she's not spotless. You're not spotless. Not a spotless bride. She has every reason to be ashamed because of her actions. And yet Christ says, I am willing to be taken away. I'm willing to receive the consequence and the punishment for those sorts of sins in order to make that one who is so obviously filthy 
clean in the sight of my Father. There will be a time to mourn when I'm crucified, he's saying, and taken away from this earth. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? If the kingdom of God is here now, what mood or what mode are we supposed to be in? The only festive mode? Or the Christ is gone now, he ascended into heaven, so, so it's the only fasting mode. Right? What are we to be in? Is Christ removed from us now? Certainly, in a manner, he is, in one way. So fasting does have an appropriate place in the Christian life. But even for us who live apart from Christ physically, we see that the new age has dawned, it has arrived in Christ, and that the day of salvation has begun uh, and has been granted now by faith. And while fasting had its place, it is not the mood, it is not the tenor and tone of the Christian life. And so listen, it's, it's not the core tone of, of who we are as believers. It has its place, but it's not the predominant place for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those days are gone, for Christ has come. We know this because even the taking away that Mark refers to, to the cross, is a place that will drive the disciples to despair. But when we read Paul later, what do we see when we see the cross? Paul says what? I mourn, I fast. No, he says, I glory in the cross. I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Even that thing that for the disciples was a great tragedy and something that brought them great discomfort and despair as one of their own would betray their Messiah and he would be taken away to enemy hands and crucified by them ruthlessly. That cross Paul looks at and he says, I have resigned myself I have given myself to know nothing except Jesus Christ and that crucifixion. That is my life. That is my joy. That is my all. That is everything to me. Even those things that were desperation for the disciples become for us a place of celebration. And that's the only, not the only place that we see that. Right? As Christ is taken away, we know that he does not and he will not leave his disciples alone. And he doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't leave us alone either. He even says, it is better if I go away, right? You remember that? It is better that I go away. For when I go, I can send you the comforter, the paraclete, right? The Holy Spirit to be with you forever. And Christ says, my whole purpose in coming is that I might be a spirit-baptizing Messiah and bring a new creation to people through the repentance of their sins and their belief in me as their Savior, which gives them the right to an inheritance in the new world that is surely theirs and can never be lost. And that inheritance is now ours by the deposit of the Holy Spirit through faith. Right? The Spirit is ours, the very Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of resurrection, the Spirit that now claims us as God's own and guarantees for us all that is true of Jesus now and forever is ours. And because of that, you see in the New Testament, even in the midst of our suffering, what do we see? Joy and hope is the underlying characteristic of our lives, right? Paul says, Paul, all that he went through, all that he catalogs and goes through and describes of himself, rejoices in suffering, rejoices. He doesn't just bite down on his mouthpiece and, 
and, and, and slug away. He rejoices in his sufferings because through that weakness, Christ's strength is made evident and clear. And so even in the worst of times, for you and I, brothers and sisters, because everything has changed in the coming of Christ so that even our suffering looks different and is perceived differently by us. We do not grieve, Scripture tells us, right, as those who have no hope. Right? We don't go to funerals of our brothers and sisters and think that's it, that's all that there is. What he had, what she had on earth, that's all that he or she had. We go to funerals of those of faith and we know that the best has just begun for them. And there's only more to come. We learn this. We learn from both Peter and the Apostle Paul that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. James tells us, count it all joy when you what? Encounter good times, right? Fun things. No, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and ultimately that patience produces hope and ultimately life. Everything has changed. We learn from this text now that Christ has come because he's given to us the salvation that God has promised all along. And therefore, your life, dear Christian, and hear this, your life is to be one of joy, first and foremost. One of feasting preeminently, feasting at his table, feasting on his word, but also just enjoying the good gifts that he, he gives in this world, even in the midst of tribulation, knowing that everything you get here that's good is only the beginning of good. These are merely uh, kind of the pre-leftovers or the scraps um, of all that there is. This is not it. This is not it all. And even in this, this these, what, what, are, what are for us the worst of times, they're not all that bad, Scripture says, in light of the eternity that awaits us. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's hardships that we go through. Yet there are so many good gifts that God gives us here. And, and this is a faint shadow of what is coming, what is promised to us that we cannot fathom in this life. How can we not be those who are full of joy when God has secured for us not only life eternal, but hope in the midst of this present existence? Because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, no matter what takes place, no matter what happens, even if it would be the very worst thing that we can imagine, we have not lost what is ours by right in Christ. And we can never lose that. What can the world take from us, after all, that God will not supply in the life to come? And therefore, we go forth always in victory, always celebrating, always rejoicing. So may we do so and believe the promises of the gospel, no matter what our circumstances might be day to day. May we receive the truly good things, the good with joy and thanksgiving, and be those who can truly appreciate it, those who only can appreciate it. For we know not only the gifts, but the giver of those gifts, the Lord himself. And when God gives us things that do not look glorious to us, may we know that he will give you beauty for your ashes and glory for your trials. And even so, we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your love towards us. We thank you for a love that we can barely comprehend. Lord, it's overwhelming when we meditate upon and dwell upon that love. 
for us, that you, the creator of the universe, would love us. Lord, it is hard to fathom, but Lord, we trust you and we believe you and we rejoice that you see us, even us, as your most treasured possession. We thank you for the salvation won for us, being plucked from the fire in the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the application of that salvation in time to each individual, each of us individually. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in our trials, in our physical ailments that we go through, in the hardships that we go through financially and otherwise. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that you are the God of the resurrection of the dead and that you will one day make these bodies new and you will eradicate forever the crying, the mourning, the pain, the suffering, all of the issues, Lord, and we'll be replaced with an unending delight and joy in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, strengthen us as we go from here, as we go back into our lives. Lord, we pray for all of those who aren't with us this morning, uh, whatever, uh, what, whatever things that are keeping them from the corporate worship, we pray that you would strengthen them, that you would heal them, that you would give them speedy recovery. And Lord, we do pray that you would impress upon all of us um, the magnitude, Lord, in an ever-increasing way of your love for us, your care for us, that you sustain us, that you are, are with us in everything and at all times. Help us truly, Lord, by your spirit to rejoice in the good things that you give us and also in the suffering that we go through, knowing that you are a good God and that you love us and that you're working even those things to shape us, to conform us into the image of our Savior. We pray for the families, <clears throat> Lord, for the parents, help them to love their children in a way that uh, in a way that's, um, uh, that, that aligns with the profession of their mouths, Lord, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we pray for the children. Bless and protect these covenant ch children, Lord. Protect them spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would give them a strong sense of your love and your will in their lives, and that they would indeed claim you as their very own as they grow <clears throat> and as they make expression for themselves and their faith in Jesus Christ for their lives, and that they would indeed commit themselves to serving him all of their days. Lord, there are our issues and our prayers are complex and many. You know each one. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us as your people, um, strengthen us in the bonds of love. Lord, maintain, continue. We praise you for the peace and the love that we've had. We pray that you would continue that. And we do pray, Lord, that as we go back into the world, those whom we interact with, that you would give us a boldness and that you would give us an answer uh, to why we can rejoice in suffering, to why we can uh, delight and praise um, our Savior, <clears throat> and we can share the gospel, and we can tell people and bring people to come and be encountered with Jesus, the only hope for life <clears throat> in this life and the next. And we do pray, Lord, for our unbelieving loved ones and family. Lord, we all have them. We pray, Lord, if it's your will, bring others into their lives, prick their hearts, challenge them, that they would indeed be confronted with Christ. And if it's your will, Lord, that you would replace their hearts of stone with a beating heart that beats for Christ, that we could rejoice with them in our mutual Savior. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness. Be with us now as we continue in worship and as we leave this place. Uh, Lord, protect us until we can come again corporately as your people. 
We ask this all in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. 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 <clears throat>